Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Thursday, October the 22nd. This is episode 2758 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today's show is inspired by two different things. It's called Building a Content-Based Business for Lifestyle Freedom. And here's the two things that, that inspired it. One, last night we did an episode of Unloose the Goose, and we phrased it as counter-technology. Counter-technology to counter the technocracy. There's all these things coming down the pike that the technocracy, which I view not just as the big tech companies, but the fascist nature of the tech company and the government pretending to be at odds with each other and actually working together to control human humanity. Um, we've got that, and so... What are our alternative technologies that we can use? So those lead to things like 3D printing and cryptocurrency, and they also, it also leads to lifestyle decisions like growing your own food. We talked about that last night, and I realized a lot of it wasn't really technology, wasn't really counter-technology, at least not the way that we use the term. And I think maybe we need to redefine the word technology a little bit so that we understand how all-encompassing it is. When, when you go grow a garden, you're using gardening technologies. So you sometimes can counter high technology with low, old, ancient technology. Sometimes it's a great way to go. An example would be World War II and the Navajo code talkers. While everybody was trying to come up with the next great enigma code, the unbreakable code, the U.S. employed these people that spoke a native language that was simply completely unfamiliar to our adversaries. And if you think about If you, if you were to, to sit down and, and use listening in on somebody else's radio frequency and they were speaking very quickly in a language that not only did you not know, but had no words in common, and you couldn't even recognize that language, how lost you would be. Now imagine if the, there was some small group of people on the planet that spoke in the language of ancient Sumerians. That would even have been more cryptic and more ancient and a lower form of technology in many ways. And so there are maybe different ways to look at this from a technological standpoint, but I guess then is, is entrepreneurship a technology? Again, we, we've taken technology to mean something that boops and beeps and lights up and flashes or something like that, but you know, when, when the first human picked up a stick and clubbed something with it, and became a tool maker in that this thing that they did nothing to other than recognize this heavy side and this lighter side is weighted and clunk and this thing falls over and dies, was a technology. The next step in technology was attaching something to the stick that was even heavier and more blunt. That was a technology. Somebody figured out, hey, wait a minute, let's take this rather thin stick and sharpen it up and make a point on it, we can stab shit. That was a technology. Somebody figured out, hey, if we take that pointed part and we stick it in a fire and we burn it, 
and we don't let it go up in flame, but we burn it a bit and reform that point, that point becomes stronger and less likely to break. Oh, if we heat this particular shaft over some heat, we can straighten it, and now we can take this pointed stick and then put it with another stick with a string that's made out of some animal intestines or sinews between it, and now that one stick will propel the other stick, and we made an arrow, and that was a technology. And then when somebody figured out, hey, if we take this stuff called obsidian, probably called it blah, blah back then, right, and we play with it and we do this thing called flint napping, we can turn it into a really sharp point, put it on the end of that stick, and it's now enough. See, these are all technologies. In our world today, we have lost the concept that technology is really best defined as a method of doing something by assembling things together, right? Anything that we do that with, so business is that. Not only you know the technology businesses are technology businesses, but in some ways all business is technology. And I don't just mean because we use technologies like we'll talk about today, because we're talking about lifestyle businesses, content creation business. So obviously, video is a technology. A video platform is another form of technology. But the concept of assembling your life together as a business in itself is the application of a technology. Entrepreneurship is a science. It is a technology. And we all agreed last night, no matter what we talked about, that entrepreneurship was kind of a linchpin. We talked about cryptocurrency. How do you get cryptocurrency without the government knowing you have cryptocurrency? When if you have to buy it, you have KYC, which is know your customer, and you have to you know, give Coinbase your ID and all that. It's fine to get started, but like if you want to ongoing and have cryptocurrency coming into your life, and you don't want to constantly be saying, hey, I got some more, how do you do that? Well, the easiest way and the way that most of us uh, in the panel that we're discussing it last night do it is we are involved in some form of entrepreneurship and some portion of our customers tends to do business with us with cryptocurrency. And when they do, it's about as anonymous as it gets, even with a public blockchain like Bitcoin. It's very hard to figure out where that went with just a few little additions. Like, don't just send it to this you know, receipt thing like, like a PayPal thing that I have. Contact me and I'll give you an address. And every time I'm somebody who does that, I give them a new address. It all goes to the same hole, but it's a new address. And that is a technology. But what makes it possible? Entrepreneurship. If I'm growing my own food, that's one level of power. But if I'm growing my own food and I think entrepreneurially, now I can turn that into a revenue stream. Maybe some of it for some cryptocurrency. Maybe it's straight barter. Barter is a technology. So that inspired today's show. And I was thinking about something to do with entrepreneurship. And this morning I get up, and while I'm putting all my stuff together, you know, doing the item of the day and all that, I a lot of times pull up YouTube and watch some of my favorite producers. There were content creators there. And there's a dude I really like, Brant. I've talked about him before. He does a show called Angler Up with Brant. And I'll talk more about him in a bit, but he was talking to a dude, another dude that I follow, that they've become kind of friends online, and they do things together sometimes, known as Bama Beach Bum. Well, Bama Beach Bum and him were having this conversation at the very beginning, and it just kind of was caught as like, you know, part of the formula we'll talk about in a second. But they had this conversation where Bama said, I used to sit in that parking lot over there and watch YouTube videos of you. And think, my God, this guy fishes for a living. I wish I could do that. And Branch says, and look at you now. Because here's what Bama Beach Bum's doing the same thing he is. But Bama Beach Bum is not just monetizing videos. He's a professional fishing guy. 
But let me tell you what he's doing. He's doing something that I've questioned for a long time, whether or not somebody could do this. I'm really good at surf fishing. And if I lived somewhere where I could surf fish four or five times a day and I learned the tides and the patterns and the seasonality, I would be really good at surf fishing. Because I'm already good. You drop me in a place and I figure out what's going on really, really fast. There's no way I could be as good as he is on his beach that he fishes all the time or his group of beaches he fishes all the time because he's there all the time. Local knowledge. And I've always wondered, could you run a guide service like that? Would people actually pay you to set up some lawn chairs and rod holders and throw some rods out for them and say this is the right bait and the right rigging for the right fish at the right time? Turns out they will. And this guy is making a living as a professional fishing guide and doing it with no boat. He's getting about the same money for a trip that someone with a boat does. Maybe not quite as much, but enough that he's making more money per trip in profit, I guarantee you that, because no boat means what? It means no boat insurance. It means no gas to tow the boat. It needs no gas to run the boat. That's the biggest bill a guide have, especially a, like a, a saltwater guide. It means no boat to maintain. A boat has been said by many people to be a floating hole into which you throw money. About the only way that you can have a boat without it being that is to be a fishing guide, and it's still a hole. It's just more money comes in than goes in the hole. But here's this guy, in about a year's time, sees somebody else, emulates that guy, and then is smart enough to know, I can't rely on YouTube ads alone to make money here. I need to do this a different way. Does so, and takes an idea that I've always thought, maybe this is my retirement business, where I don't even give a shit if I make money. Like, if I do one trip a week, you know, fine. And I get to meet people, and whatever. And he's actually making a living on it. And when I saw that, and I already knew he was. I mentioned him last night uh, on ULG, on, on Loose the Goose. I mentioned him last night, and then this morning to see that video, I was like, this is what I've got to talk about. So I've got this broken down. We're going to talk first today about why business ownership is so powerful to countering statism and the technocracy, why it actually works. And then I'm going to give you the biggest unnecessary risks I see content on, uh, current online personalities, whether they're bloggers or video or whatever, uh, taking today. And I see the, the, the lesson of the formula uh, cycle. I want to talk about that. I'm going, to, I'm going to explain to you why one of the reasons I love Brandt is he was the innovator of a formula that almost every fishing channel uses now. He was the first person I ever saw do it, and uh, literally... Every well-put-together channel right now is following that formula. I'll tell you the good and the bad of that and how it, how it relates to reality TV. We're going to break down the formula so that you can start thinking a little bit differently and be the innovator with the next formula or at least modify the existing one so you have a differentiator. We're going to talk about things you really need to not underestimate. And, and I, I can't tell you how important that is. Like, there are so many things when people get into a business like this, they underestimate. We're going to talk about all of that. And I think by the end of this, if you want to take a run at this, um, just understand it's what I did over 12 years ago with this podcast. And I didn't have anybody to tell me this stuff. I think you can start out ahead of where I was at the time. Now, I knew how to market, and I knew web technology. But the stuff I'm going to give you today is actually far more important. It's harder to learn. Let's start off, though, with a quote of the day. This is Oscar Wilde Week. I think one, I might have to do an Oscar Wilde month, man. I mean, this guy's got 
hundreds of amazing quotes that really make you think. Now, let's talk about democracy today. I hear so much about democracy right now. Democracy, democracy, democracy. Wilde put it perfectly. Democracy means simply the bludgeoning of the people by the people for the people. And, and I think it's way worse today than it's ever been in history. I, I get on people sometimes and go, we're not a democracy, we're a republic. We are a representative democracy in the form of a constitutional republic. We are both. Quit saying that. But I know what you mean. And we've gotten today to the point where the media, media literally makes the case that if 51% of people want something, then the government should do it. I mean, you know, like when it comes to like appointing a Supreme Court justice. Well, right now, 48% are for and 52% oppose, as though that should be the determining factor at whether or not you seat a justice on the Supreme Court. And that's just a current example. There's, and, and, and then it swung, and they stopped. When, when they did the hearings, and people actually saw that lady, and she is, no matter what you think of politics, and I basically hate it all, but no matter what you think of any politics or anything, that woman is freaking smart. She is poised, she is well put together, and she makes ass clowns look like the ass clowns they are. And they wanted to get the hell away from that because the more people saw her, the more, and that, that, that changed. But that's, that's still not how we figure things out in an actual civilized society. Wilde had something to say about civilization, too. We'll get to that later. But what we've done now is we've literally installed the concept of the tyranny of the majority as the status quo in people's minds. Even when it doesn't happen, we've convinced people that it should. Well, if more people want it than don't, then that's the nature of democracy. And guess what? It is the nature of democracy, and it's why democracy is the bludgeoning of the people by the people for the people. That's why I'm not exactly a fan of it. And people say, well, what form of government would you want then? We've talked about that before. We'll do it again. We're going to move on today and talk about building a business because that would be key to the success of everything I want anyway. So let's start off with why business ownership is so powerful to countering statism and technocracy. Number one, it completely changes the burden of taxation. I was explaining this to my, my nine-year-old grandson, and he even, he even he really understood the basics of it. He was asking me about, you know, you work really hard, but you have your own business, and why do you work so hard since you have your own business and you don't have to? And we're talking about, like, money and why we have money and not why we have money as a people, but why we, my wife and I, have money in the first place, why we do well for ourselves. And one of the things I explained to him is most people go to work, then the government takes taxes, and I had to explain what taxes were, and then they get what's left. And then in a business, we earn money, And then we take as much of it as we can spend within the business, whether we would spend that or not without the business, and we spend it. And then we pay tax on what's left. His little eyes lit up. He doesn't have the intellectual capacity yet to fully understand the ramifications, but he got the point. You keep more because they get less. And, 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 and that was how he said, well, so you get to keep more because they get less. Yes! He has seen, at nine, he has seen the light. And yet, so many people in America struggle with this concept, and they, 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 you know, wail and gnash their teeth about the rich getting richer. Well, of course they do. The rich understand money. The rich understand money, and they focus on money, therefore they have more of it. And you could too. And, and the question of whether you will or not will come down 99% of the time to one, will you try? 
Because if you won't try, it doesn't matter. But then, too, if you're willing to try, how do you react when someone else does well? And if you see somebody, you know, have a really great year, make a bunch of money, expand their business, get an award, whatever it is, and your first thought is it must be nice, you are going to be dirt-ass poor for the rest of your life. Even if you have money, you're going to look like you're poor. And if your response in your head, because it doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you think initially. If the first thought in your head is good for them, you have unlimited potential. You have unlimited potential because you don't despise success. You don't have a negative association with success. The person that says it must be nice, and you know the way I mean it, or if the, if the, if the person that did it, did it was an attractive female and it had nothing to do with her sex life, but their first thought is she must have used her looks or slept her way to the top or whatever, that person's screwed. Because what that person, what that's subconsciously telling you is that person has determined that success does not come through talent and merit and hard work, but from some form of sleazy behavior. And therefore, they will either attempt to achieve through sleazy behavior, and unless you're a politician, you're probably not going to have much luck with that, or they will constantly sabotage themselves because they don't want to engage in sleazy behavior. And instead of focusing on what would work, they're focusing on not doing what wouldn't work anyway. But that all comes back to it completely changes the way that we handle taxation. Number two, your time becomes your own. My grandson struggled with, but you work so hard, Papa Jack. I'm like, but do I really? Do I really? Because... The first couple hours of the morning, I'm out on my little homestead playing with my fish and my ducks and doing my chores, but I kind of like that. I take as much time with it, and I have as many cups of hollow roast coffee as I want to while I'm out there. I come in, I chat with you, I chat with Grandma, maybe watch a little bit of news or a video, and then I go down the hallway and put my show together and do my job. And a lot of times I'm done 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Sometimes, yes, like last night, I was working until 9 o'clock at night because we did a second podcast with him, but cook dinner in between. Yes, I work really, really hard. And in the beginning, the first couple of years, we're going to talk about that work ethic in a bit, I worked even harder. And I had a full-time job. I was probably working all in 18 hours a day for the first six months that I did this show. And probably close to the first 18 months, really, until I finally walked away from my old life. But it was my time that I was choosing rather than my time that had been taken from me in order that I might punch a clock for specific hours. The time became my own, and therefore how I used it and the rewards that came from it are mine as well. Next, you choose your form or forms of compensation. People are like, well, do you take credit cards? Yeah. You take cash? Sure. Silver? Yeah. Gold? Well, it'd be a pretty small piece of gold for a $50 membership, but I, yeah, sure. Uh, would you take barter? Sure. Cryptocurrency? Most. Sure. I, I, I'm unlimited. I can literally trade anything I have of value for anything of value I want to accept it in. How's ButcherBox paying me? What a big box of meat. There's no... I didn't have to go get approval for that. They offered, sure, that sounds good. I got to eat. Your meat's great. If I'm going to represent it, I should be eating it. Yeah, you can pay me in meat. So they get to pay me in the retail value of meat for the cost of my advertising, 
but it costs them less, and in the end it costs me less, and you can figure out how that's the case, right? Um, there's a lot of ways that works out, but yeah. So when you can choose your form of compensation, not just how much, but the form of it, you have a lot of options when it comes to getting around what the system says you're supposed to do or have to do that you don't really have to do. And no one can fire you. Now, you can fail, but no one can fire you. Well, Jack, what if half of your listeners decided they think you suck and didn't want to listen to you anymore? I can live on half of the money I'm making, and I can build that market back with some other... Uh, I would, that would give me a clue that I'm doing something wrong, and I could make changes to adapt to it and build a whole new market and a whole new listener base. You know? Can you ever... Can, can this business ever fail? Sure. I don't think it will at this point. It's been here... 13 years next summer will be 13 years. Once you get past five, you're in, you're in pretty good shape. The fact that no one can fire you, and people said to me last night on YouTube, you know, I bet Alex Jones didn't think that, that, that anything could happen to him either because he was independent as far as being doxxed or deplatformed or whatever, and they threw him out of YouTube. I'm sure Alex Jones isn't happy about being thrown off of YouTube or Facebook or Twitter, but Alex Jones isn't gone. He's also relying on terrestrial radio primarily, and he did a lot of other things, but he's not gone. And in some ways, when people are attacked like that on these platforms, if they're smart about it and if they have contact with their people, they don't fall into that landmine, they become more powerful because their people become more loyal. So no one can fire you, and you always have options no matter what happens if you're smart about it. Now, I want that leads us right into my next segment, which is the biggest unnecessary risks I see current online personalities taking. I'm calling them personalities because almost bloggers, all of them, are personalities. Podcast hosts, video. We're talking about content creation business here. And I guess you would say that there are some content creators that are maybe a little bit different. Like, if you write books, you're a content creator. So authors would be. But authors tend to be personalities, too, even if they don't intend to be. People don't say I'm waiting for the next book about. They say I'm waiting for the next book by. Once you build a fan as an author, right? And and, and that's how, if you think about it, how your, your most successful authors became successful. Brad Thor could release a book that sucks and people are going to buy it because they buy every book that Brad Thor ever releases. I'm not saying he's going, I'm saying he could. Now, it would start to hurt But the first one, people will buy it without even thinking about it because they just buy every book Brad, Dan Brown. You know, he built some following with Digital Fortress, but then Da Vinci Code. And the next three books in that series were all instant bestsellers. They didn't buy it because, oh, I, look, at here's a book about angels and demons. They bought it because it was by Dan Brown. So when you're a content creator, whether people really know you or not, You become a personality. And on that note, when it comes to most of the ways that we do that today, when we're not somebody with a New York City publicist on our side, it happens to it happens on platforms today. It's Facebook, it's YouTube, it's etc. And I think the number one risk that people take that they don't have to is what I call mega platform reliance. I am not saying not to build a business using these platforms. I'm saying not to rely on them. If, if your whole world would end because YouTube decided they don't like you anymore, you've got a problem. And I think we need to, to, to really 
understand that when you become completely reliant on any platform, completely and totally reliant on any platform, your problems are deeper than the political shit that's going on right now. A simple change can take away everything of value from you. If Google or YouTube, which is the same thing, were to one day completely benignly decide to change some things about the way a person sees the next suggested video or how they see their subscriptions, or so, and this has happened, a person that has a huge following that gets lots of views could all of a sudden still have a huge following and not get lots of views without being shadow banned. It could be something that's not directly malevolent. It's just incompetent, a bad idea. I mean, corporations do that all the time, Microsoft Zoom, right? I mean, everything going for it. Let's come up with this and make sure that it fails. It was, it was like a suicide. They should have called it the suicide MP3 player. It was just dumb. Every good thing about it had something that ruined it before they made one and put it out in the market. It, it's, it, it, so that doesn't mean that, you know, well, gee, let's go back and re-engineer the zone. Um, it means that you can just rely on companies to do dumb things. And if you are dependent on a single platform, that dumb thing can hurt you. Sometimes companies do things for reasons that are understandable. An example would be uh, Amazon Affiliate Commissions. You guys know I do that. And my income has gone down drastically over the last five years. In spite of selling more for Amazon than I ever have before, I get less money because they continuously cut the commission structure. It's it, Most things now, if an Amazon affiliate pays 3%, it used to be a a really great program because the more you sold, the higher you earned of, of a commission, which incentivized you to work really hard to sell more because every time you went to the next tier, you got more money. And I maxed it out over and over again. Now, I don't work as hard at it because it doesn't pay as well. Money goes where it's treated well. And I'm not dependent on it. right? It, it's a, a significant portion of our revenue at this point. And I'm glad it's there, and I appreciate everybody that shops through T-Spaz. But, you know, if I had built my whole business on it, which is what a lot of people advised me to do early on, long before I ever did any kind of affiliate marketing, and I was only doing sponsors and memberships, who were like, you should just do this. You can make a lot of money on it. Well, if you lose that one thing. So whatever the platform is, it's not necessarily just a distribution platform, but... Any platform at all. So a platform is PayPal. PayPal is a payment platform. That's why I have PayPal and Stripe. Because the next thing is zero redundancy against platform losses. So if you are a YouTube creator, I think that's a good thing. I hate Google. I hate what Google's doing. But it is the best place to build a business on video right now. Uh, with TikTok, actually, depending on what happens with all that shit, being a place to get a lot of traffic from video. But if you want to build kind of the type of business we're talking about today, it really is the case that YouTube is the place to be. So then why not set up an Odyssey library account and have all your videos immediately backed up? 
I mean, you put out a video tomorrow morning, your you put out a video this morning, and by lunchtime, a copy of it is sitting on another server completely immune to being taken down. Even if that platform doesn't make you any money right now, it's there. It's protected. It's defended. It begins to build its own niche. And if, if some of these other alternative video platforms will get their shit together, bit shoot, where the automatic import feature actually works, bit shoot, it does not, then I would add them, even if I'm not working them. I would create as much redundancy in copying my video content as I possibly can. I am an audio show here on the podcast. But I have begun uploading copies of my podcast because I can do MP3 uploads to uh, Odyssey because that's redundancy. I'm not on just iTunes. I'm on every podcast distribution service that will let me on. And I host my own podcasts. Everyone's like, why don't you use Libsyn or whatever? Because I don't want somebody deciding they don't want my content anymore. So even if I get deplatformed off of iTunes, my core listeners know how to find me. I have my own dedicated server. I pay the bill. It's my own business. That's another form of redundancy. And so many people are so beholden to one place that if anything goes wrong with it due to malevolence, incompetence, or just the changing of time, they have no plan B. As much as I love Brant and, and Bama Beach Bum, if YouTube decides they just don't like fishing anymore because PETA decided it's, me, it's mean to fish, they're both screwed. Now, Brant's in real estate, so he's got that going for him, but that's outside of the business that we're talking about. And then failure to, failure to monetize beyond the same shit everyone else does. When I started this podcast, let me tell you exactly how many podcasters had membership programs like I do. None. None. The platform that I use called A Member was originally developed for people that sold how to get rich online materials. That's who it was built for. And in the beginning, when you looked at their portfolio of sites that people built on their software, Nine out of ten were make a bunch of money by getting all these ebooks and getting these monthly updates and stuff like that. They built it for that. I looked at that and I went, you know what? That's what I need. Now, how many podcasts did I have some sort of membership association with, with them? Dozens. Dozens. And most of them do what? They offer discounts. Why? Because it makes sense. That's why I made it that way. But how many people can do that before it's like, well, everybody does that? And your first movers, they maintain a strong relationship with their customers. They have leverage that, that new people don't. But eventually it sort of fizzles out is the way to start. And you need to do something new, and we'll talk about that in a second. But if you look at going back to, you know, I love Bama Beach and I love Brant and whatever, what's every fishing channel doing? They're making sponsorship deals with manufacturers, and they're selling shirts and, and mugs and shit like that. And some of them are doing memberships. This is really prominent in like the aquarium space. That's another niche that, that's, that's really successful on YouTube, where they're using the YouTube membership program, and everybody's forced into a $5 cost, and all the money runs through YouTube, and YouTube takes their cut because it's easy. But how many people can you do that with? Before you're like, I've supported enough content creators. Or everybody does Patreon. Like, it's the people who start figuring out how to create a monetization component to what they're doing that's easy for their customers. The customers see tremendous value in it, and it's a differentiator. 
It's not just what everybody else is doing. And what I see, and, and, and these two guys, I love them. I want to point out I'm not putting them down. I'm just using an example. They, all, they both have mega platform reliance. They have zero redundancy against the platform shit canning them or screwing up. And then the one thing I'll give them credit for is they are monetizing beyond the same shit everyone else does in a way because they do guided trips. I don't know that Brant's even doing that anymore. Brant's gone into real estate business, and that's good business to be in, too. But, you know, selling shirts and mugs and stuff like that, there, there is no huge future in that in, in, unless you're Zazzle or something. So you have to think about ways, like, don't not do those things. But don't rely on those things. Don't think right from the beginning, well, I'm going to be really successful because people will watch my videos and I'm going to get ad revenue from AdSense. Because let me tell you something. Way, 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 long, long time ago, before y'all ever knew what the hell a Jack Spearco was, I ran a whole network of little bitty sites. And I moved traffic all over the place. And I had months where I made thirteen to fifteen to $20,000 a month just on AdSense revenue. And in one month, it got cut in half, and in another month, it got cut in half again. And in, in, in a year later, it was a fraction. It was a few hundred dollars a month. Now, they didn't say, we hate Jack Spearco. Google got complete dominance in contextual advertising, decided that YouTube was the place to put that platform, realized that all the publishers that had all the content out there that were doing what I was doing had no place else to go and just started paying less money because they could. Now, that same platform today is the majority of the income that comes into content producers. Then they say one thing they don't like, and they get demonetized. That YouTube doesn't like or whatever, and they get demonetized. Back to that same thing. You've got to monetize beyond what other people are doing. Let's talk about the formula cycle. It's not just a formula. It's a formula cycle and how it r relates to reality TV. Let's start with the fishing video formula. And I could be wrong, but I, I credit Brant from Angler Up as being the guy that really came up with the formula that 99% of people doing fishing videos are doing today. And here is the basics of the formula. The video begins with the rod bent over and a drag screaming or something like that and some sort of event happening where you can't quite tell exactly what it is, but you know it's cool. And this is a 15 to 30 second segment from the video that's probably 60 to 70% through the full video that is going to be in the range of 10 to 25 minutes long. Okay? And I'm telling you, like, I've analyzed this formula. This is the exact formula they're both using. All of them are using. The video then switches to a very early morning scene or a late evening scene, depending on when the fishing is going to occur, talking about what is about to occur and why they're doing it and what they're going to do. Quite often this is done in a truck from an inside view or standing up against a vehicle from the outside view or the dock where the boat is or what have you. This will go on for anywhere between one to three minutes depending on what's going on while this introductory concept and storyline plays out. Then the person will engage in the activity known as fishing. If it's a boat, you'll see the boat heading out to sea or whatever uh, before the lines go in the water. If it's being done from shore, you might see a cast net or two. And then the fishing will commence. The fishing will be condensed so that there's enough activity and commentary to make it not boring because if the guy's fishing for six hours and there's you know 30 minutes of catching involved, we're going to pull out the best 10 to 15 minutes of catching and spread it out over 20 minutes. 
When that ends, we'll have a wrap-up. And the wrap-up will be dependent upon the formula as to what this video was done for. If it was done for catch and release and we're done for the day and we're going home, there'll be a little talk at the end, maybe a stop at a restaurant or something like that to end the day. And, hey, when you're in town, check this place out. Or if it's like a catch and cook video, you'll see the, the animal will be filleted or whatever, and then it'll switch to the person's kitchen or the friend's kitchen, and they'll cook it up and eat it and tell you what they think about it. And I could go a little bit more, but that is the formula. And the formula really hits home with it's the, the conversation beginning nine times out of ten inside a vehicle while they talk about what they're going to do in the early morning hours or possibly waking up and having a cup of coffee and going out the door to the vehicle that's being loaded up. And if you start checking out all the successful fishing channels, they all do it. The exact same way that once was that first, you know, reality TV survivor or whatever, all the reality TV shows are the same. You change the scenery, the, the person type, whatever. It's an island, it's a jungle, it's the woods, it's the big brother house, whatever it is, but the formula is the same. Because once we know the formula works and we want to break into this business, we copy the formula. That's great. But the timeline where the new formula works well for the new entrant to the market is inherently limited. When the new formula arrives and you're browsing through YouTube and you're looking for fishing videos and you see this video and like another thing Brant really seemed to be one of the first movers on was catch and cook videos. I like catch and cook at freaking hardhead catfish. I've always said hardhead catfish are cool. And people should be trying to eat them and not saying that they suck when they don't have any idea because they never ate one. Let's watch this guy. And then the formula is in that video. So they hooked me with this different concept, catch and cook. And I saw, that, well, this guy's got his shit together. He's cool. Let me check out his other stuff. I'm going to subscribe and get alerts. It works. When, they're the, when you're the only or a small group of people that have this formula, it works really, really well because this is different. This is different. I like this. It's different than TV, and it's different than all these other people, so I'm going to follow this. Eventually, as enough people jump on and engage with that formula and copy it exactly, it's not different anymore. Now it's down to quality, my actual interests, and I have loyalty to the people I found first. And it becomes very difficult for you to say, I'm just going to do exactly what Brant does and build a fishing channel. Because I've seen people do it production-wise better and yet have under a 1,000 subscribers. Why? They're not doing some other things we'll talk about today, but one flaw is it's just another example. And when you take and you find the new thing... The new piece. You could have 80% of the formula replicated, but you do something different. Catch and Cook would have been an example of that. That's like everybody makes the food the same, but you sprinkled a little flake sea salt on the top of yours. Where not only was the salt flavor there, but the salt crunch, and you see the salt, and you have, like, see, that does change the presentation with a subtle addition. And that is the edge that you're looking for when you're doing this. Um... Those who innovate and create the next formula will become the next to blow up. So when the new formula is out, you can use it, and it'll work. 
is you do everything else right. But the longer it's out, the less you'll gain just from the formula. You'll have to do other things to make it work. And whether that's additions, modifications, alterations, or just better marketing to go with it, it's going to have to be something. It won't just do it for you like it did it for them. Next, the formula is made up of. So if you're going to have a formula, you need to know what the formula is made up of. It's made up, number one, of the script. What I gave you with what Brant does. That's a script. And the beauty of having a script is you know how to put together your next video. It doesn't matter if he's fishing for tarpon one day or freaking eels the next or whatever. The formula is going to be the basic formula. It's going to start out in the hotel room with a cup of coffee or it's going to start out in the truck. And we're going to go out and we're going to try to catch some fish and we're going to talk about it and we're not going to hide our screw-ups. That's one of the, you know, like we broke a rod by doing something stupid the other day and he didn't hide it. Like All that stuff is already in the script. That doesn't mean that the episode is scripted, but the formulaic way that it's laid out is scripted. So that basic script line is now what everybody's using in that fishing video formula. Well, you can come up with a new script line, and then you have a new formula. right? There's, and I can think of some ways to do it, but creativity is most importantly generated by the one doing the creating. So I'll leave it at that. The next uh, part of the formula is the form of the media. Well, obviously, if it's a fishing video channel, then video is the form of media. But does that have to be? The only form of media. What if, what if there was a five-minute Angler Up with Brant podcast? This is what's going on with fishing in South Florida right now. This is what we cover in our latest videos, and this is some funny shit that happened on the water. Scripted that way. Five minutes. And that podcast drops on iTunes. And it's that brief, quick podcast like that about fishing, and you see it, And you know, when it's there and you first see it in your iTunes, when you're looking for fishing podcasts, it's got like three episodes. You might be like, I'm not going to really invest my time in this, right? Uh, because it, you're, when you look at a podcast series and there's three, you're like, I don't know if, if this is going to be around for a while. But you just keep throwing them in there. And, you know, six months down the road, if it's weekly, you know, you're looking at like 25 episodes. If it's a daily, you're looking at more. It can be very field-generated, like my early days would be an example. Now, what happens if that podcast blows up to that YouTube channel? Now they interwork. I want to know more about this. And, and, and to me, if it's a five-minute brief by a professional fisherman, and that professional fisherman's pushing his YouTube channel, no more than one minute of that five should be spent telling people about the YouTube channel. 20% maximum. And in, in, in his example, or Beach Bum's example, five minutes is about right. Because you're putting so much work into the video side. So I put a little bit of work in the video side to funnel into the audio side. They would flip that around. That would be a form of media within the formula. Okay, A call to action is part of the formula. What do you want your people to do? Share, subscribe, and get the alerts. Every single good YouTuber ends with some form of that. But what do you really want? What do you see? To me, I would alter the formula. I want you to go to my website and subscribe to my podcast. If I was doing a fishing channel, 
I want to funnel you into something that puts you in my database. Having you subscribe to yet another YouTube channel, if you have 500 you're subscribed to or 5,000, doesn't help me that much. I want you to do that too. But I want to create within my formula multiple positive outcomes. Because Brant can keep asking me to subscribe to his channel. It is pointless because I already did it a year ago. I featured him as a YouTube channel of the week two years ago. So while that is a good use of that 30 seconds at the end of the video, because the next person might subscribe, it's wasted on me. You have to start thinking about in your formula, what do you want that person to do next? Once I get you to take an action, it's easier to get you to take another action. And once you take two, it's much easier to get you to take the third one than it was the first two. It becomes exponentially easier every time I get you to take an action and get you to take another one. So I need to be thinking about what does that process funnel of multiple actions look like? What is the ultimate goal? Is the ultimate goal I want 70 people to come hang out with me once a year and pay me 500 bucks to do it? A la TSP 2020 workshop, sells out in five minutes. Is it, if I'm a fishing guy, do I want to be able to command a $20,000 speaking fee at the five biggest fishing shows in the country? I don't have to work any more than that now, do I, if I can get that response? How do I do that? Well, it's one thing if I tell you know ABC Fishing Ventures that runs the giant tackle show in Vegas, I have 500,000 YouTube subscribers. I can get people to come. It's a totally different thing when I can say, I have about 500,000 of my most loyal followers on an email list that I can directly communicate with and offer them a special incentive to get them to come to your show. If you're ABC Tackle Ventures, which one of those personalities do you more want to work with? So the formula needs to button down on getting these calls to action to move the person closer and closer to being attached to you and within your sphere of direct influence rather than having this intermediary. Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, doesn't matter. How do you get the relationship direct? Doesn't mean we don't want the good from an affiliate relationship or a platform relationship. We just don't want that to be the end. The next, the stickiness of the total system. How much does it stick with the person? If you just happen along an episode of Survival Podcast and listen to it, you may or may not become a listener. But I know from my records of tracking all this over the years that if I get a person to listen to me for two weeks, that I have about a 50-50 shot in that person becoming, damn near, for, the, for the length of the show for, so far, a lifelong listener. I'll lose a shitload of people on that first contact. But when they come back the second time, they're likely to come back for a week, and when they come back for two weeks, I have a 50-50 shot that person will never leave. And out of that group, about half will become paying members. And out of that group, about half of those will become lifelong true fans. And so my process is designed to make that happen. Does that make sense? And that's that needs to be part of your total system design when you're creating your new formula or emulating the existing formula but improving it. Because imagine if you take a formula while it's 
its effectiveness is still there for the new person, but you not only emulate it, you add forms of media, you add calls to actions, you improve the stickiness. While all of you are competing for the same group, you're moving a segment of that group off of that one space where everybody's fighting with each other, even when they're friendly fighting, into a place totally divorced from that, where if that whole world blows up, or five million people just like you show up there and do it just as good as you, it doesn't matter because your piece is over here now. Or a piece of your piece is over here. And a piece of your piece is over there. Two is one, one is none. Right? Three is for me, four is more. Five keeps you alive in business as well as life. Six is the kicks. Seven is heaven. Eight is great. Nine is fine. The more redundancy you build, the more stickiness you build. Next, the form or forms, and I'm going to change it in my notes, to the forms of monetization. That's part of the formula. So even though when I talked about the formula Brandt is using with the truck and all, there's still a form of the formula in, well, I'm going to make a deal with this sunglasses provider. I'm going to make a deal with this rod provider. That's one source of revenue. Maybe it's not even direct revenue. Maybe it's gear. Gear's expensive when you're doing all this content production. People want to see gear. Getting it for free, that's one piece of monetization. Getting some sort of agreement like, I have a special code, and like that's a, that's a piece of revenue. Having an agreement that I will feature you in the next 30 videos at the beginning with a graphic or whatever for this much money, that's a form of revenue. That's a form of monetization. YouTube advertising, where you get money for the ads, that's a form of monetization. Nothing wrong with that. I take my money from YouTube. I just don't rely on it. You see how I'm saying that, right? So a form of monetization for Bama Beach Bum is because his channel is so popular, people just will pay to fish with him that normally wouldn't ever think of booking a surf fishing guided trip. But I get to fish with him. I know him. I want to spend time with him. I want to hang out with him. I want to be featured in one of his videos. 300 bucks? Fine. Boom. Form of monetization. Form of monetization. And that is a differentiator. A lot of the guys that are using this exact formula are not guides. So they don't have that more big ticket item. Sure, somebody watches your video, you make a penny. Yay, I made a penny. Woohoo! Get, gee, now you can buy a new heart. Right? You can have that heart transplant now with that penny. But when you start booking two or three trips a week just because of that as a fishing guide or something else, and that's you know 900 bucks a week, you're starting that starts adding up to money. And if you can then integrate it to where I'm going to take this trip where this person is paying me and video it and they're going to be happy about it and that's my next piece of content which furthers the process funnel of the next person who wants to come do that because they saw it it was fun and they want to do it too and yet that video that needed to go up that day or that week still happened even though I was engaged in this other activity that becomes part of the formula does that mean everybody should do that formula? No, but it means that you need to be thinking that way when you build your own. Then the parallel niches are part of the formula. What are the things that fit with this thing that become additional what we would call verticals that create funnelization into what you're doing? And that's, I'm almost wondering if I should have put that bullet point in there because this is some really high level marketing shit now. 
But this is the associated components that drag people into your main funnel that seem to be outside of your funnel. So I do a lot of YouTube videos that are there because I like to share information with y'all, but they're done. It, they're, I don't do high production value videos. I do behind the freaking phone camera videos. But all I know is when I put out a video that if it gets 4,000 views, a thousand of them will be people that have no idea who or what a Jack Spearco is. And a portion of those will hear me say at the end, hey, check out my podcast. And a portion of those will do it. And a portion of those will stick. So when I come out with a video on Comfrey Route, that's an associated niche. It's an associated vertical. There's an entire group of people that are going to be researching Comfrey that will watch anything about, at least give it a shot. And if that video is under six minutes, they're going to watch it. And if I'm compelling a bit in the beginning, I'm going to look at my view time and see that like 80% of the people make it through the six minutes. And I've got a good formula on that vertical niche. I don't talk about this a lot because I'm kind of giving away the secret sauce behind the scenes today. But that's how I think when I put together a video like that. Even if it's spur of the moment, it's like, yeah, this would be a good video. Check that spider out. But when I just, I just do the video. But then when I describe it in the title, in the tagging, in the text, and in the call to action, it's designed around this parallel niche formula. And then the marketing methods. There's a point where you get enough momentum, and you know like you're a top 10 category podcast on iTunes, you're going to get new listeners every day. That's going to happen. You get 100,000 subscribers on YouTube, and you put out a video, and it's going to get 10,000 views, and it's going to get associated views, and it's going to grow. And your market's going to get bigger. But in the beginning, you no matter how good you're doing, you have like a top-notch restaurant sitting in the middle of the Utah desert with no roads going to it. Every time you do a decent piece of marketing, you just added a road that leads to your restaurant. That's how you have to think about it. I, for instance, some of the stuff I did in the beginning isn't even things you would use today because it was 12 years ago. That's ancient history. That's ancient history in the world of online marketing. But I used to use a, a little advertising outlet called StumbleUpon. I, I should look them up. I'm not even sure if they're around anymore. But it was really cool, and you could select people based on age demographics and sexual demographics, a male or female, and then interests. And one of the interests was survival and preparedness. And for a certain amount of money, you would get a certain amount of rotations you know, guaranteed versus the ones that happened organically. And I poured a couple hundred bucks a month in that for a few months. And then as it sort of petered out, I quit doing it because, and I let it do organically whatever it was going to do. But that seeded early on to get that first thousand listeners that were so important and get those reviews and get people talking about it. And guess what just happened two weeks ago? I put out a video in one of those associated vertical niche markets, and the person just happened to mention, you know, I found you years ago and stumbled upon. Now, there's a person that's been listening to me for 12 years that found me in a stupid little ad built into a platform that probably doesn't even exist anymore. Marketing is part of the process, and most people don't do any marketing. They don't do any marketing. And it's very important when you do marketing that you think about what you're doing. If you've built up a really great YouTube channel and you have a really great teaser video on it and everything's really right, Sure, you can market people straight into that channel. 
most of the time you would be better off marketing them into a video or into a landing page that's not even on YouTube, but it's on your own website. Where it offers them something or engages them in some way. But you have to have marketing methodology as part of your formula. Or what you're doing is you're just relying on the platform to do it all for you. And it might, but the number of people it does it for is the, is the minority. The beauty with marketing is when you know your marketing and you can measure the response, you can measure how well does the marketing actually get people to the place and how well does the place convert people into whatever positive action I want. And then you can look and just define your weakness. My marketing doesn't put enough people in. I can change my marketing. Marketing's putting plenty of people in, but they're not converting. I'm either bringing the wrong type of people in. My marketing is too broad or more likely the, comp the, the compelling nature of what I'm showing them first is not sufficient to get the response I'm looking for. If this all sounds like work, we're about to get there. It is. It's more work than most people realize. It looks easy to you when you watch somebody like me do it because you're not doing it. My whole job is to make your life easy. I found a podcast. Subscribe. I'm listening to the podcast. Oh, he's talking about some cool piece of material, some, some cool thing. I'm going to look that up. Oh, some bitch. I could use that. I've always wanted an Excalibur dehydrator, and holy shit, he just told me they're on sale for $100 off. I'm buying one today. That all looks easy. It doesn't just happen. It takes this nuts and bolts approach. And a lot of it, you do figure out the formula as you go. Don't ever let any of this get in the way of irrational exuberance of content creation. Start creating the shit out of content. But start forming into a process early and always be working on making it work a little bit better. And as you see a piece of it work, then you work on that. So you have all these little side niches, process funnels, all this stuff going on, and this one starts taking off. Well, we're going to fine-tune that sucker. And then we're going to use that one and say, here's the second best one. Let's use the first one and push things into the second one. Didn't work. Okay, so we know the first one works. We know we can move people with the first one. Second one doesn't work. Second one's flawed. We either fix it or go to the third one. That's how this that's how this actually builds momentum over time. This is why you see people work their ass off and never get beyond the beginning of success. And you see other people, it looks like they're doing the same thing to you on the outside, but they just build and build and build success upon success upon success because they're doing this on the back end. I am going to point it out again. I am literally giving you information most people who know it will never tell you for any price, let alone for free today. This is the nuts and bolts back end of how you build a content business by someone who's done it very successfully. Now, I'm not bragging. I'm just trying to drive home. Do not let the value of what you're hearing today go over your head or around it. This is one that's probably worth listening to more than once. So where to start? Number one, do what you love. You can build a business like this doing anything. Anything. So why would you do something you don't love? Don't do fishing because, gee, this guy Brant's blowing it up if you don't like to fish. And I would say not even like to fish. Like you can see yourself 
fishing four to five days a week, every week, for years, and not getting tired of it. If you love fishing, you can see yourself do that. I can see myself doing that. It's not what I'm going to do, but I'm going fishing today. I went fishing twice last week. I'll probably go fishing again next week. The week before the workshop, I'm taking my, my, my buddy JR out fishing with a professional guide. It would qualify. Conversely, I do not like to work on engines even though I used to be a mechanic. I know a lot about engines. I don't want to build a content creation business around being a mechanic. Humble Mechanic loves it, so he did it. Do what you love. Yes, on the formulaic thing and, and everything else, yes, you should do what works for others. Because it's proven formulaic, and it's proven to work. And there's no need to reinvent the wheel. But once you put the wheel on the car, the next step is add to it and innovate. So you can build a car... But we can do this one thing that tunes that horsepower just a little bit higher. Well, there's one thing that makes it just a slight bit more aerodynamic. That one swap in those wheels to a different tire that grabs the ground a little bit more. We do all three of those. All of a sudden, this car is outrunning all the other cars that are supposedly equalized by NASCAR and their restrictions. Business works the same way. You do what's working for others, and you add to that, and you innovate. Next, create a strong process marketing funnel. That's something you need to do early on. Now, creating the content, creating the landing sites, creating all of the calls, creating all of that first is generally a good idea because if you go out and create the process funnel first, you have nothing to work with. It's like buying gasoline, but you don't have a car. Right? If you, until you have a car to put it into, it, it's just a, a, a fire hazard. <laughs> the only reason we have gas is we have some, something to do with it. It's going to go on a generator, going to go on a car, going to go on a lawnmower. Without that, it's just a fire hazard. We've wasted money. So we can't engage in marketing without a product. And when you say, well, I don't have a physical product, that's fine. You are the product. You're starting out early. You're not even sure what your monetization is yet. Your product is you. Your product is, I want subscribers. Your product is, I want email addresses and names that are real of people that will get an email from me and not delete it. And once you have that, then you can start turning on that process and start measuring it. We can't get in exactly how to measure it today. Next, it really makes sense for you to just simply look at what everybody else is doing and don't worry about shitting on them, but try to be 10% better. Right? In real estate, I have what I call the 1% formula. All I have to do to sell a property is be 1% better than all the other properties selling for that price range in that neighborhood. And I'll sell my property. And I'm going to do that because all buyers are settlers. The person buying a $100,000 home, a $500,000 home, a $2 million home, all three of those people are settlers. The guy with the $2 million home is going to see a $2.5 million home he wishes he can afford and he can't. He's going to do the best he can for $2 million. The same way the person buying a $200,000 home is going to see a $300,000 home they wish they could have but they can't and they're going to buy the best they can for $200,000. People have a little more flexibility with how they spend their time, who they subscribe to, who they pay attention to. But if you have a differentiating total 
Not necessarily one thing, but all these little pieces together. When somebody looks at you, just that guy's 10% better than the rest. Boom. You got them. If they're going to be associated with anybody, they'll associate with you. When you when you look at content, nope, no content is 100% what you want. I'm sure there's things you find that are not quite perfect to what you would like to have about TSP. But if I'm 10% better than anybody else you listen to, you keep coming back. And so you need to be 10% better than your competition. And in my notes, I have competition in quotes because that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you want them out of business. You just don't want to lose to them. When it You don't even care if you share the customer. Just if that customer has to make a decision between you and them for some reason, what video I'm going to watch today, what video I'm going to share with my friends, which one of these people I'm going to give money to, if you're 10% better, you're going to win that most of the time. Next, care, and I mean really deeply care about your supporters. You need to love your people. You know, you go to the dry cleaners and you get a little uh, hanger with your thing, and we love our, we heart our customers. No, they don't. Bullshit. I just, that's when they got their hanger supplier, he suggested that it would make you feel good. And I'm not saying it's bad marketing, but it's, it's not true. I don't love you. I do. I love my audience. Even when you hear me sometimes tell people they're an ass clown. I still love them if they're actual supporters. I mean, I love my, all families tend to love each other and they argue. But I love my audience. That's why I can get up every day and work hard for you every day. Because you're important to me. Because I look around and I think every day, everything you have is because of them. Sure, you did the work, but if they didn't respond to it, if they didn't love what you do, if you didn't make their life better, they can't make your life better. You have to value the people, and I mean your real supporters. This does not mean that when you have somebody who is a time-wasting pain in the ass that you go out of your way to accommodate them. Because I believe also in firing customers. We won't get into that today, but I'm good at it. I will fire your ass as a customer in a heartbeat. When you, when you are taking more time than you're worth And that time is now coming away from people who I could be better serving. It's not that I don't like you. It's that I love them. And they're my first and biggest duty as an entrepreneur. My loyal customers, my people that love me, my people that take action, my people who build businesses, my people who send me your jerk jack letters, people who build a business of their own and, and send me stuff on that so I know what I did matter, people that are, are putting their life in order that never have before, the people that are pulling their kids out of school and homeschooling them, like all those people, those people are my first and highest duty as an entrepreneur. I am not just saying that. I could not have built this this thing the way I've built it if that were not true. I couldn't have stood through. I've made mistakes. I've screwed some things up. And you're still here only because that. And I can't give you that. But I believe if you follow all the other things in this segment, doing what you love in a way that's working for others and adding innovation to it, creating a strong process funnel and being 10% better than your competition... Since you started with doing what you love and you put all that work into it, the people that reciprocate to you on the other side, you will love them. And if you don't, something's wrong with you. Things not to underestimate, though. We just, I have so much synchronicity today. 
I jumped on Telegram right before I started, and there was a whole laundry list of things about getting started with a content creation business. And the guy said, after he put it up, there's a lot of negative in there. I don't mean to be negative. Starting a business is one of the most optimistic things you can do. And I said, being honest about the work and the effort and the sheer grit it takes to make this work is not being negative. It's being a realist, and it's the only way you're going to get through it. So with that in mind, things not to underestimate. This is real work. This is You watch these people, and oh, he fishes for a living. No, he documents his life for a living. Fishing is just the big part of his life he documents. Oh, Jack talks for a living. No, Jack teaches for a living passionately about the things that he feels are important for people to make their life better with. And he is an audio editor. He is a script writer. He is a, a small farmer. He is a multifaceted entrepreneur. He is a marketer. I do, in my business, jobs that people do full-time better than people that do them full-time. It's not bragging. It's what it takes. And you can do it. Because you are not bogged down by all the bullshit of corporate America so you can move faster and only do what's necessary instead of all the other shit that some boss wants you to do to justify your existence. But here's an example of that. Years ago when I was on Glenn Beck's show, I had all these people vetting me. When you got on Glenn Beck's show, you, you had four pre-show interviews before they let you on. So first I was on The Blaze, and I was vetted before that by one person. Then after The Blaze, kind of like that first tier, Then, okay, they want me on Glenn Beck, but then all these people reviewed things with me, pre-interviewed me, gave me questions, questioned my integrity in a positive way, make sure I wasn't full of shit so I didn't come back to hurt them. But one of the people during all this said, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm kind of going off script here. You know, like, wait a minute. So do you do five shows a week? Uh-huh. And back at the time, you know, I was at like 1,200 episodes. You've done this for years. You've got like 1,200 episodes. Yeah. So who does your editing? Well, me. Well, who does your research? Well, me. I mean, my audience sends me lots of... But, I mean, I'm the one that... Well, who does your programming? I don't know what you mean, but I'm going to tell you it's me. Well, what do you do when you take a vacation? I run reruns. Well, who sets that up? Well, I do. Who writes Who writes all your show notes? Well, me. Who does your graphics? Me. Like... And, and it just got to the point where this person was like, I don't, I don't understand how you do this. They were doing 5% of what I do full time. Now, yes, they're doing it for something the size of the Glenn Beck operation. But I was doing it for my operation, which isn't exactly small. Plus five other people that she bumped into in the office in the morning. I was doing their job too. It's real work. Maybe more than you've ever done. That's why you better start out with what you love. Documenting what you do is going to be more work than doing it. A lot of stuff that I would like to put on my YouTube channel, on my little farm, that doesn't get there is just because I don't have, I got to get it done. It is so much more work to do the process of documentation, even low production value, than it is to just do it. So if there's a broken pipe and I need to fix it, I might put a little 30-second video of it spewing water and ice on Instagram, but I'm going to get on it and fix it. I don't have time to talk about how I'm going to fix it and why I'm going to do it that way. So I have to be 
careful with what I choose to document. Next, do not rely on the platform itself or the form of your marketing itself for success. You must market yourself. You must market you. This is something hard for people to do because it conflicts with the natural, humble state of the human being. Most people are not arrogant bastards. And I'm not either. It's hard for me to talk about myself in a positive way publicly. It's gotten easier over the years because when you do something, no matter how uncomfortable it is, you get better at it. But you've got to market you in a content creation market because you are the product whether you realize it or not. It's all about you. People can tune in and listen to a podcast about preparedness and lifestyle design from a hundred different people. They're tuning into this one for Jack. And if your name's Bill and you're really good at it and you're different than me, the people that will tune in to yours will tune in for Bill. There's tons of videos on fishing. Some of them are even okay. I have people that I follow because Brant fishes in a lot of places I grew up fishing and still fish today. That's one reason. Two, he's got a great personality. Three, I love the way he talks to people that randomly end up on his videos. Like, what are you, what are you fishing for? What did you catch? That kind of people. Because people just don't start asking him questions while he's filming. <clears throat> and the way he answers them, he ex- answers them exactly like I do. Now, he didn't sit down and go, you know what? I'm going to answer questions of people asking me about me, my fishing, giving them just enough information so they'll leave me alone and being nice to them, but not giving them so much information that they won't go away because Jack Spearco does that, and he likes me if I do that too. He did that because that's him. He just didn't take that away. He left it in the content. That's going beyond relying on the platform or the form itself. The, the total, total 100% integrity to be yourself and then market that as being a differentiator. It's not that I'm good. It's that I'm me. You've got to market yourself. And in more than one way. Then, the cost of getting a really great business like off, off this off the ground. Don't underestimate that. It's not free. Well, YouTube's free. Okay, well, we already decided we shouldn't just be using YouTube. Cameras aren't free. Gear is not free. Your time is not free. Things that you won't be able to do that you will have to outtask and manage as contractors doing for you is not free. People do not work for free. There is a cost of doing business. Document it. Know it. So you know if you're actually profitable. And, of course, you want to take every single bit of it and use it against your revenue to pay less taxes. Don't underestimate it, though. And then the value of sticking to a specific vertical market. All those side niches are process funnels. Those are just things that we're using. We're not putting our main effort there. One of the reasons that my YouTube will never be as successful as a lot of these other people is because I don't have a thing on YouTube. I'm ridiculous variety because I only see YouTube for me as a side funnel into my main business. That's why I don't have green screens and HD cameras and GoPros and all that stuff and massive amounts of editing and things like that. I don't. That's not my core. I use audio because it's best suited for my style of teaching because I'm going to tell this, here's where you're going to think I'm looking over your shoulder. 90 percent chance that right now while you're listening to me this very second you're engaged in a secondary activity you are not sitting in a chair taking notes maybe this show eventually some of you will because you'll realize that it is that kind of show 
But most of the time, you're taking a walk, you're on the treadmill at the gym, you're lifting weights, you're in the garden, you're taking a walk in the woods, you're in your car. No, I'm not over your shoulder. That's just how people consume audio. And since I am not using a lot of visual components to my instruction and entertainment, audio is best because since the most valuable thing you have is your time, you can consume me while you're doing other things. If you're watching a video, you tend to actually have to watch the video to gain the value of the video. Now, I have a lot of video producers that I don't look at that way because I don't really need to watch their video. I'll only pull it up when they said something. I'm like, I want to see that. I just listen to it in the background like it's a podcast. There's another formula going on right now that's highly useful to this. I call it the little man in the box formula. And the most successful individual commentators on current events and politics use it. Tim Cast would be one of those. And, and the little man in the box formula is we have our computer open, various articles and things that are occurring and other videos that are occurring. And then we have a camera pointed at us and we have our editing program. So we're a little man in the bottom and they're all in the bottom left. Check it out. They're all in the bottom left. Okay. And they talk about these current events and here's this thing and Newsmax says this and BitChute says that and blah, 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 blah. And then this came out early and one of my sources tells me this and blah. But little man in the box through the whole thing. Well, that content, while it is visual, is, is what I call visual when necessary. It's a hybrid, and it's a very good content form to be in. Because if he's sitting here talking about some shit, and I'm, ah, that's interesting, that's an interesting way. And he says, oh, and so I say, oh, wait a minute, I want to see that. And I pull that tab up and look at, okay, and I watch that and go back to doing other things. That's, that's a hybrid, right? You have to really think, based on the form that you're marketing in, what is the market that I want to stay true to because I'm not subscribing to a channel, highly likely, on YouTube that's about fishing and fish tanks and gardening and you know a million other things when I'm really interested in this one thing. The fans you're looking for are going to be really loyal to this one thing. And how narrow that needs to be is going to be directly dependent on the platforms and the, the form of, of, of media. If I can hook you with audio, since it's so interrelated with other things you're doing, I can be more broad. If I'm going to really hook you with video, I have to be tighter on my niche. And then never, ever, 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 ever underestimate the sheer, utter value of true fans and true friends. And they are different. The true fan is the person who is like, if you say to them, Tell me an influence on your life. They will give your name. That is a true fan. That is a true fan. Even if they eventually wander and don't spend, they'll come back. They'll show up again. There'll be a day that they're, they're lonely or bored or whatever, and they'll pull you back up and start looking at what you're doing again. That's a true fan. A true fan, if you're a musician, is a person when you take all your music and make a box set out of it and coat it in leather and sell it for $300, they'll buy it if they have the money. Even though they already have every song you've ever done, twice, they'll still do it because they have so much affinity for you. They don't ever want you to go away, and they don't ever want you to stop, and they're going to support you. With a thousand people like that, out of like nine billion people in the world, if you are good enough and you care enough and devoted enough, you can make a thousand of those. 
you never have to do a day of work for somebody else ever again for the rest of your life. I suggest you get more than a thousand. But a thousand people, because another way we define the true fans in the true fans formula, which comes out of the music industry, a person who will spend one day's income on you a year. If they make $100 a day, $36,500 a year, they'll spend $100 on you. See how that works? Here's why a thousand is a magic number. It allows you to earn three times the average salary in America doing what you love. And if you understand that, when you realize that that's one of the people you're talking to, they only maybe are one of a thousand, but they're that important. And that will not only affect the way you interact with them, it will affect how hard you work for them in what you're doing next. True friends. True friends are the people that help you. Here's some true friends that this show has had that have meant the world to me, and they're still here. John Willis at SEO Tactical Gear. Probably the best friend TSP has ever had and literally won't let me do square root of F all for him. I don't know why. I have bought shit from the man. I don't ask for anything. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I'm going to buy that. And I look in my PayPal account, refund, refund from SOE Tactical Gear. Don't you want my, the next day the shit shows up in the mail. Sometimes I don't order anything. Go out, there's a box sitting out there at the front. I didn't order anything. What the hell is this? It's SOE, oh crap, open it up. 40 t-shirts. Bet your ass the number one thing you see me wearing when I do a YouTube video, right? You go look at my YouTube, nine times out of ten, what am I wearing? SOE t-shirts. Why? Wh why wouldn't I? Huge friend of the show. Patrick Rorman of MT Knives. That was a two-way street, but it's still very, very loyal friendship. Lots of mentions in his other content about me and what I'm doing. Free State Project. They're a paid sponsor today, but those guys did so much for me early on, and it was reciprocal again. I did for them because I believed in what they were doing. I gave them, I think, two years of advertising for free early on because they were doing so much to me I thought it was worth doing, and I wanted them to succeed. But that was a true friendship. Appleseed. Appleseed, some of the Appleseed shoots, they put my decals on their rack rifles that people use during shoots. I mean, true friend. Ron Hood, without being asked, one of the most successful people in the survival preparedness niche, put my logo on his site and told people, you got to go listen to Jack. And I can keep going, and it, it almost feels like an Oscar speech where you leave people out or something, right, at the end here. But the value of people like that, you, you repay that any and every way you can. And you need to be that to other people who you don't expect anything from. If you want true friends in this world, be one first. And I just gave it to you. I just gave you an absolute course in success in content creation business. There is no way you take what I said today to heart and you pour your heart and soul in it doing something you love and you fail. That doesn't mean you won't fail some. doesn't mean you'll have success immediately. 
But I've given you, I'm, I'm telling you, you can go out and spend thousands of dollars on e-courses about split testing and all kinds of shit like that. It will never help you the way this will if you'll do it. If you're that person. And part of what I do with integrity is I'm going to be honest. Not all of you are. Even some of you that want to be, you're not. I think you all can be. The potential lies within everyone to be this person. To be the person that will think, not how do I do the next video so it gets a lot of views, but how do I do this in a way that is going to make the lives of the people already supporting me a little bit better, a little bit happier, teach them something they didn't know that they can actually use. Just make their day a little better, whatever it is. If you can become that person, then this is not only something you can do, but if you truly want to live a life doing what you want to do, it's something you should do. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. One of my monetization funnels, and really the way that we pay most of the bills around here, is the MSB, or my members program. If you want to be a member, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, sign up, Use the discounts, get your money back. And I would submit to you that that comes out to about 18 cents an episode of this show. But the only way that the episode I did for you today isn't worth way more than the 50 bucks a year is if you're not going to use it. <laughs> I promise you, this, this episode has the potential to put thousands and thousands of dollars in the pocket of anybody that will do it. So uh, consider that when you consider supporting us. The other way is do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Um, integrity is my brand. Every single thing I recommend on tspaz I own, I use, and I spent my money on, with the exception of one item that was given to me in return for review, and I disclosed that. So one out of 500 was given to me. And I would have bought it, but the guy offered it, so I took it. Uh, today's item of the day is one I just found a couple months ago, and I'm I'm – trying to wear it out but it's too beefy to wear out it is the cave tube cave tools pellet smoker tube i brought it around before uh, i thought it'd be a good time to bring it around again today but basically you fill it up with wood pellets you light them on fire and it smokes on your grill and i've done smoked catfish i've done you know steaks where i just put a little bit of smoke flavor on them to kind of level up the performance of the gas grill this thing is beefy i think you could beat somebody to death to it with it and you probably wouldn't dent it um it's fantastic it's a 20 dollar tool You buy it once, you cry once, you never regret it. Um, I got a lot on the review as to why I chose it over some other ones that are about half the price. Um, one big reason, though, that I'll point out, if you're the person who wants to do a brisket or something like that, and yes, you can do a very good smoked brisket on a gas grill with this thing. When you fill it, it runs for a long, long, long time. Uh, almost too long. Like one of the hacks that I've already figured out is if I only need smoke for about 30 minutes because I'm doing some steaks and I just want some more flavor on them, like I wad up some aluminum foil and shove it in there and, you know, only use a couple inches of the space because it works a lot better if the wood pellets are stacked like that and it's hard to light them when they're all the way in the back. Um, but if you want it to run a long time, um, I think it's about eight hours when full that it will run for. And it just works great. And for 20 bucks, your gas grill or your charcoal grill is also a smoker. And I've, I know, I, I can tell you 10 different ways to smoke 
uh, using wood chips and, and, and wood chunks and stuff like that without a smoker. But I can't tell you any that are easier and more guaranteed effective than this one. So check it out today. Again, it's made by a company called Cave Tools. Uh, I'm really impressed with them. I've also found some other stuff I haven't gotten around to reviewing yet, but they're skewers. Uh, they're awesome. They're also just everything this company builds is just beefy and tough. Uh, check it out. Remember, you can always find everything I recommend at tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. And it is Van Halen week as we recognize the recent passing of Eddie Van Halen. And uh, today's song is a perfect follow-up to yesterday's song. Um, I said yesterday, Dance the Night Away was probably the least Van Halen, Van Halen song ever released. It's just bubblegum and pop, but it was what the record label um, wanted released to get them on the radio, and it did result in selling like a million copies of the album that song was on, and it led them to the point where they could do what they really loved. This song's like one of the most Van Halen songs of the David Lee Roth era anyway, of all Van Halen songs, and it's called Unchained. And I'll let the song speak for itself, but, I mean, the guitar riffs are amazing, which is what you'd expect. The song is not typical. It did not get a lot of radio play other than what were called album-oriented uh, stations. There were some of those, and it did well there. became a fan favorite, big-time live uh, performance. And people loved the song because it was real. It was authentic. It was the real Van Halen. It made true fans, right? They had far more than a 1,000 of those. But I wanted to pause for a second today. For some of y'all that are younger, and you might look back at this era of music, and you might like it a lot. I mean, I think Eddie Van Halen had a lot of fans that were not around when he was, you know, in his heyday. That that, that liked the older music and discovered it, and their parents exposed to them or whatever. But I don't think if you weren't a kid in the 70s and 80s that you can understand how big Van Halen really was, especially among guys, young kids in the 70s and 80s. There were three things, and the other band is just not even worthy, but it was there too, so I'll acknowledge it. But there were three things the average teenage boy knew how to doodle when he was screwing off in class and supposed to be paying attention. They were an MTV logo, the Def Leppard logo, and the Van Halen logo. And it was, there were only three that almost everybody could do and did do all the time on the back of their work or whatever when they were screwing off. And probably the most popular one, to be honest, was MTV. And it was, it was in a big way, though, <laughs> related to Van Halen being such a great band. And, uh, man, everybody, I mean everybody, knew how to draw the Van Halen logo. That's... That's one of the biggest, like, unthought-of testaments. And I bet you, if you, like me, are around 50 years old, or a little older, a little younger, I bet you when you were in school, you drew the Van Halen logo. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Yeah.
show.